0: Hi, Peter.
1: Hi, Liz. It's been it's been a long time. It's been like a calendar year, so it's really good to see you and to be talking to
0: you. <laughs> we have moved into a new calendar year, that's true. Yeah. But I'm glad to be back on the mics with you. So we have quite a bit of ground to cover from the last few months, and in mm-hmm. the interest of not trying to pack our podcast too full... We, I think, are going to focus right now on the stuff that, everything that went down in January. So right now at the time of recording, we're deep into the unit on gender and justice, but I want Mm -hmm. to make sure that we give ample time and space for the January content because I found it to be really meaningful personally. Um, And we will catch up to the calendar and spend time on the current unit in a later episode. But um, I wanted to start by asking how the future of faith gathering went in San Francisco and what stood out to you at that time. It
1: also that also feels like eons ago, but it was just a couple weeks ago, I guess. Wild. um, Yeah. And maybe just for context for our listeners who may not be aware, (laughs) January is kind of our interim month. And so we have four months in the the fall and then four months in the spring, uh, February through May. Uh, focusing on very specific topics. And then January in between is a, an interim period where we take a break, we have a gathering. It, uh, it's a large public conference, but many of the participants are um, people in the network. And so we did at the end of January, a conference called the Future of Faith. So that was a blast. It was really fun. It was fun to uh, meet people that we've been, like that I've been in Zoom calls with twice a month Mm-hmm. Over the past couple of years, and we had never met in person before. And it was such a delight to meet them. And it was almost as much fun, maybe more fun, like seeing them meet, meet each other and mm. the depth of friendship that was uh, that had been cultivated over the years. Um, and I know Zoom calls are difficult and people have a lot of fatigue around interacting online. But it's also amazing how much uh, fruit can be born out of yeah. um Hearts and minds engaging around hard questions. So that was, it was fun. It was a blast. I'm so sorry you couldn't be there, but we'll try to make oh, one of these too. work where you're, yeah. you are actually here in the flesh. Maybe we can do a live podcast next year.
0: Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Every year as my children get a little bit older, I feel like it becomes a little bit more feasible. Yes. So, um, so I'm so happy to hear that the time was meaningful. It always is that January in-person gathering is always i think really life-giving so i'm glad to hear that this year was no exception Mm -hmm. i also wanted to spend the bulk of our time on this piece that you posted at the end of the month called deconstruction spirituality five shifts for faith after deconstruction and you are the author of this piece Mm -hmm. um and i am so grateful i know that you were like very um what's the word i'm looking for you were very modest in the in your post, very humble and sheepish about being like, sorry to like post this thing I wrote. But I am so grateful that you did because I, let's see, I started seminary 17 years ago. So I have been deconstructing and thinking about deconstruction for almost two decades now. And this piece put into words so many things that I've experienced and I've seen in the lives of fellow ex-evangelicals. So... Mm. I um, I mean, not just to butter your bread, but I feel like this is a huge contribution, both in terms of people's mm. individual journeys and like people being able to have language for the things that they've experienced that they maybe haven't before, and also mm. to the broader conversation about what's happening right now in American Christianity, because I don't know anybody who's writing about deconstruction. So I really appreciate this piece. Um. And so, I guess, like, just to start our conversation, like you aptly pointed out at the beginning of the piece that deconstruction often feels like chaos. Like everything is getting torn apart. There's often no sense of what comes next. So I'm curious how how were you able to identify these five shifts? Like, was it your pastoral work, your academic work? Was it both? Like, I'm just curious about your process.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, first of all, for your very kind um, and generous words. It means a lot to me. I I have such um, a high regard for you. And so it's um, an incredible word of affirmation. Um, Great question about how I came to these five. um, And obviously there could be a lot more. And just for the sake of focus and time, um, I tried to think about what are the five shifts that stand out to me the most. And by the way, these five shifts were also the th- they were the five topics we covered in the January gathering. Hmm. And we have five different speakers uh, hmm. address each of these shifts. And that wow. was also it was such a privilege to hear their wisdom on these topics. And so I think it's, for me, it's really important to note that these are not my ideas. I'm trying to give some um, some kind of organization and some context and some examples to these trends or things that I'm observing in the world. Hmm. Um, and then more specifically, I would say it was really helpful to think about, this is going to sound like self-promotion, but really helpful to think about the work that we've been doing in the faith and justice community Hmm. what are people moving away from and what are Hmm. people gravitating towards Hmm. so i think it was just an exercise in reflecting on um, the work of our community as well Hmm.
0: Um, yeah that makes a lot of sense i'm curious do any of these shifts stand out for you personally, either in your own life or in the conversations that you've had with folks in the network or elsewhere?
1: So would it be helpful to name the shifts, the five shifts? And then we can sort of, yeah, okay. So shift number one is from triumphalism to lament. Um, Two, from morality to dignity. Three, from certainty to mystery. Four, from superiority to mutuality. And five, from rhetoric to embodiment. And um, you can see me smiling. I'm smiling because this is a hard question. It's almost, uh, it's not like being asked, you know, uh, which one is your favorite child? <laughs> but It's almost <laughs> like, which one of these really stand out? I would say... Um, they all cohere together and, in some hmm. ways, flow from one to the next. But although sure. they don't have to be in this sequence, I don't think the thing that I think is really um, has been has marked my journey over the years is the is the middle one from certainty to mystery. Hmm. Because in many ways that sounds obvious. I think my hmm. background is in um, kind of in the evangelical and the reformed evangelical community. And it seems to me that my understanding, at least the ways that I understood my professors and the textbooks we read in seminary, um, was that there was a kind of humility that shaped the theological enterprise because, Mm. you know, we've talked about this in the Reformed tradition, we make a big deal about total depravity and Mm. total depravity affects our minds. And so Mm -hmm. how is it possible that we with our incapacitated minds, minds that are tainted by the fall could fully apprehend who God is. And so of course, there's going to be mystery. But mm-hmm. as I think about this, it's, um, it's really striking to me, how often I had a degree of certainty, that didn't make room for mystery, mm-hmm. um, so much certainty that I was convinced other people were wrong. And um, and, and so my main um, goal um, where uh, my certainty clashed with the convictions or beliefs of other people was to mm. was to convince them to the rightness, uh, yeah. to, to the correct view, right? And to the yeah. rightness of my own positions. And so I think this is one that I'm still working out. And then I think this is a, a, a pitfall for many people who are moving through deconstruction is to um, is to trade one form of certainty for another form yeah. of certainty. Yeah. And there's a, a kind of new orthodoxy of progressivism that takes yes. place. That, yes. That, you know, that takes center stage. And, um, and it's really hard to shed those ways of uh, being in the world.
0: Hmm.
1: So that's one. Yeah. Um, Can I throw the question back at you, Liz? Is there one that stood out to you?
0: Yes, there really, there was. The um, morality to dignity one resonated so much. I feel like it gave language to this tension that I felt for a long time. I just want to read this line that that you closed the section with. You wrote, the shift from morality to dignity remembers that whenever Jesus faced a choice between rule following and affirming a person's dignity, it was never a hard choice. Mm. And I read that and I was like, that's it. Like, I feel like so many, I don't know, like theological gymnastics have been used over time Mm -hmm. to answer questions like, why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? You know what I mean? Like you get to that wow. Bible study and that's always the question that people get tripped up on and people try to like find the answer that allows Jesus to that like justifies Jesus's rule breaking. And you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like you you yeah. have to kind of like twist yourself up in knots, I feel like, but I feel like your answer was just so elegant and it was the one that maybe I've needed all these years But it's it's very hard to explain, say, why Jesus healed on the Sabbath unless you understand that he's coming from this lens of valuing human dignity over morality, which was, Mm -hmm. like, not something that we were allowed to say in the specific evangelical small groups that I was in. Mm -hmm. Right? So I just – that one – um. Yeah, that one just really opened up a lot for me. And I, mm-hmm. I just appreciated you articulating that because I feel like it just helps a lot of other any number of other things. Yeah. Like, you know, theological questions or whatever kind of like fall into place.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad that you pointed that one out because that was actually the hardest one to think about and to try and articulate. Hmm. Um, It's the one that I can imagine the most pushback against. Hmm. You know, sometimes you're writing and you're trying to anticipate um, the criticism. And this is the one that I think is just, uh, it's so vulnerable to all kinds of criticism because Mm -hmm. morality is the one um, word in these five shifts that don't necessarily it can have a negative connotation, but doesn't necessarily. And for many people, it's a virtuous thing. Like, yeah. what what mm. wrong? What negative thing could we say about morality? Sure, it's, sure. You know, it's a good and virtuous and beautiful thing. Why would why would I want to write a piece that's uh, knocking morality? And it's and I think it's also really important to note that there are uh, uh, moral concerns that. Uh, characterize that even give rise to catalyze a lot of the deconstruction process mm-hmm. so it's not that moral concerns are not important it's not that right or wrong right and wrong are get tossed out the window but there's mm-hmm. a deeper principle of love that oftentimes gets lost in our desire to follow the rules and then and this is the tension i'm hearing you as you speak is you had some sense of apprehension about that but it was so hard to even begin to critique it because uh, who are you, right? To mm-hmm. question morality. Who are mm-hmm. you to question these rules that have been established for so long? Um, and so it's easier just to follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't work, does it? it? It just like, at some point, I don't know, if you're paying attention, you realize people are getting hurt. Yeah. Because we're so overly sanctimonious about the rules.
0: Yeah. And what's hard, and I say this because I feel like I was one of those people at one point, like, is that Mm -hmm. people feel okay about that. You know what I mean? Like, as long as we're living rightly, then it does not really matter who gets hurt in the process. And I feel like it's so antithetical to, like, what I think Jesus was going for. Um, Yeah. you know i remember that in my own life and i still it's i still see it a lot you know and um it just like it feels like a real missing of the point that i was not fully yeah. able to articulate but i feel like mm. you you were you got there mm-hmm. in all of your wrestling yeah. you got there so um something that i think about a lot is um what this all looks like for me as a parent I read everything from the lens these days of being a parent who has no idea, who's very deconstructed and has no idea what spiritual development looks like for my kids. Um, I think a lot about this. There's been very actual spiritual development to speak of in my home. But given that my background is evangelical, you know, I only know how to get to the latter part of every shift that you talk about through the process of deconstruction. I only know how to get from morality to dignity by starting at morality and then working your way to dignity, right? I'm curious, like, do you think it's possible to instill these latter values of dignity, of embodiment, of mystery from the beginning? Or is deconstruction a necessary part of the process? And if we can get around deconstruction, like, do you have any thoughts about what it would look like to, like, instill these kind of, like, end, more, like, end goal values? Asking for a friend, and that friend is me.
1: (laughs) Okay, the first thing I should say, a big disclaimer here. I have no parenting wisdom to offer a List. <laughs> <laughs> I am a little further down in terms of I have older kids than you. Mm-hmm. But it's, all that means is I've had I've had more time to make more mistakes. <laughs> sure, sure. You are only more aware um, of
0: how little, you know, I totally yes, understand. I, this. I am
1: I am deathly afraid of trying to offer any kind of um, parental wisdom because it just feels like you we're making things up as we go. Sure. Maybe that's that's the criticism that many of uh, my conservative friends would um, would lodge would lob against me uh, like mm. lo- like grenades because and it, it you know and I'm I'm very um, I think uh, sensitive and vulnerable to that and I see the rightness of the critique in many ways because mm. it's helpful to have um, tradition behind you to be able to fall back on and I mm. think it's also important to realize hey, it's not like I've jettisoned everything. It's not like I don't think the Ten Commandments, that, that there's wisdom in uh, in the spirit of those Ten Commandments, that there is um, wisdom in following, you know, in teaching what is right and wrong. Um, and so I think there are stages of development and mm-hmm. recognizing that, you know, when a child, and you're going to know more about this than, than I do, but like when a child is at a certain age or stage, um, some clarity is gonna be really important. I I know this, I'm married to a school teacher. Mm. And what she often, what what Minton often tells me is that students thrive on structure and clarity of rules. Yeah. And they like to know, you know, that the adult in the room is actually in charge. Mm -hmm. And and so, yes, can that be um, overblown and abused? Absolutely, it Mm -hmm. happens. Um, but there's also and so I think there's a lot of discernment of uh, understanding um, the stages of development and understanding uh, where a child is and who the child is. And I have three boys and I know that the same strategy that may come close to working with one of them uh, would completely fall apart with the other two.
0: Yeah.
1: And so it's paying attention to personalities, too. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um And so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: the thing that I'll say also is that's been really helpful. It's kind of in the background here is there are people who will read eventually when this gets published, people will read this piece and hate it, who may have read uh, Walter Brueggemann and really love and appreciate his work on the Psalter. Mm. And, uh, and I'll tell you one of the things that's been really helpful for me in this, in thinking through some of these questions and issues is what Brueggemann says about the Psalter and the movement from orientation to disorientation, mm, to mm-hmm. new orientation. Mm-hmm. That the Psalter as a whole moves through it, and sometimes you have single psalms or a collection of psalms, uh, a few psalms that move through uh, these very dynamic movements. And the thing that he says at the um, in one place is that every new orientation at some point becomes the old orientation. Mm. And so this is not a static thing. It's not like you come to a new orientation and you stay there forever. Right. Um but it, it's, a, it's a process on repeat because mm-hmm. life is ever evolving and, and culture and the world around us is changing. And so I think having a sense of the change um, around us happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, our children are, are fonts of wisdom, not always, but in, in, <laughs> in many ways. And I think um, <laughs> it can be because they're on the front lines of seeing those changes happening in yeah. the culture and the world yeah. around us. And so they're hearing uh, and, they're, and they're more in touch with the sensibilities around those changes. And so I think um, uh, some kind of conversation around common questions um, are really important. But I realize that's, that's a lot of gibberish coming from my nervousness around, I don't know, like parenting <laughs> is so hard. Kids just, I mean, talk about mystery. Kids are so yeah. mysterious, Yeah. Uh, especially in the teenage years and um i think the one thing that gives me hope in the, in the midst of all of this is if there is a god this god will be able to pull us through it and it will yeah. survive somehow
0: yeah oh so many good things to respond to in there one i appreciate that whole that whole like brueggemann yeah. um, bit about the new orientation becomes the old orientation. And I I, mm-hmm. I feel that and I fear it, to be honest with you, because I regularly yeah. fear that like my children's rebellion is going to be like finding some kind of like mm. fundamentalist group to be a part of, um, mm. which is one of the reasons why I feel some level of urgency. I would like them to have some kind of foundation in something as opposed to nothing. So they're yeah. not as like prone to being swept up in in something you know does that does that that make sense i don't want them to be like hoodwinked when they're in college for example Mm -hmm. um but going back even further i really appreciate what you said too about like needing to understand where they are developmentally and like that's often where i feel like i run into tension because you're everything you said is totally right like kids when they're young they don't have the frontal cortical development to be able to understand things like nuance and abstraction right so, mm-hmm. you know, when my child asks me questions, having answers like it depends is not that helpful for me. It it would be yeah. great if he was like 32, but he's not. He's seven. and <laughs> The other one's four. So it depends does not go a long way at that age. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it is helpful to give them something instead of yeah. like uh, something clear and like well defined, a little binary maybe. Um, yeah. And then I think the key, I think, um, so part of me wonders if, you know, what it would look like to give them something that is like a little bit more clear cut, but errs on the side of say dignity over morality, because I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but everything that I've ever seen for kids coming out of like my, in my evangelical, you know background has always Mm -hmm. been like very moralistic right so yeah i wonder what that what that looks like um i would love for some publisher to get on this creating some kind of curriculum that's like rooted in like these values of embodiment, embodiment and dignity for kids just so i can see what it looks like because i have no idea
1: yeah
0: um and i think too like talking about development i think for me, one of the big issues that I've had, or that I had around theology in the evangelical church is that I never really felt like it, div- it evolved very much. You know, like I felt yeah. like the, a lot mm-hmm. of the same messages that I got around everything from God to sex, like pretty much ch- was fairly unchanging from when I was very right. young to when I got older. And, um, The conversation needs to evolve like as our brains Mm -hmm. become better equipped to deal with things like abstraction and complexity and nuance and as we experience more of life and see that like actually nothing very few things in life are black and white and actually the world is mostly shades of gray i felt like i was not very well equipped to deal with that with the Mm -hmm. Theology That I was given at a younger age. And so that's how yeah. that's when deconstruction started. Right. And I did not have many tools yeah. to help me navigate it because all the tools that I had were the ones from the old paradigm.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So I wonder, does this ever happen where people are much more conscious of and uh, really good at, at explaining the tra- the moments of transition where uh, as a parent, you say, well, this is the way we're going to order our life as a family because mm-hmm. I'm the parent. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you can also say, but it's not always going to be like this. Hmm. And and then when you enter into that new stage to say, hey, remember? And then at some point, I'm again, I'm doing the thing that I said I wasn't going to do. I feel like I'm prescribing some kind of manual or something. So <laughs> I feel a little bit nervous about that. But then at some later point, it's not even so much that we're going to have a, um, an explanation session, but that there's going to be much more conversation and back and forth and a mutual yeah. effort to arrive at uh, rules or just norms that we're going to abide by. Yeah, And we're going to shape that together. Mm-hmm. But also to say along the way, hey, remember, it didn't always used to be like this. And, and wh- why do we think it's important that we've changed the ways that we relate to each other. Hmm. Um, I wonder if that could be helpful. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll try that today, <laughs> tonight around the dinner <laughs> table, all right? To say, hey, you remember when we used to relate differently to you? Um, but I, I just don't know um, that it works on a day-to-day basis. But I do wonder if there's some kind of framework. Um, and then just observing the transitions, moments of change in um, in a family's own dynamics. I can
0: Yeah i could see that being
1: messy and murky
0: yeah no i could see that being helpful just kind of like calling out that things are evolving like bringing to their awareness that things are evolving and helping them reflect on that i think is good and important and i also just think maybe just like modeling modeling flexibility and openness to change in your own life and thinking probably goes a long way Mm -hmm. um I don't know about your experience, but I feel like, you know, in my experience, like my immigrant parents like had far too many things to deal with, you yeah. know what I mean? Then to like have the luxury yeah. of like sitting down and like reflecting with us on like how we do things and like blah, 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 yeah. you know, like they often, right. because they were just trying to survive here, like they just needed to do what was most expedient. So um, I don't feel like in my own life. Again, yeah. I don't fault my parents for this, but like I and my yeah. I don't my my model of parenting is not one where rules changed and yeah. became more open and flexible and dialogue driven as I got older. But <laughs> yeah. that could be something that I implement with my kids because I have like the privilege yeah. of not being an immigrant and like, you know, of of some sense of safety here, you know, because I have the bandwidth to have those conversations that my own parents maybe yeah. didn't. I say all this because it sounds great yes. in theory, but the reality is that my oldest child is seven, <laughs> so things are still pretty, still pretty black and white. Although even oh, now, yes. we let's see,
1: talk like, again in ten years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's t- catch me again. This catch me again when
0: I turn fifty, and then we will we will have this conversation again. But oh yes. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for entertaining that. I just like I wonder all the time. Like, is there a way? Like, what does it look like? If, if my faith has evolved from A to B, like, what does it mm-hmm. look like to start my kids at B? You know, I don't have models yeah. for that. And yeah. I don't, I would love to, I mean, I'm, I'm not exposing them to a lot of A either at this point in life. So like, yeah. what does it mean yeah. to, to start with B? And I, I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah um that is the struggle i that that really is yeah profound challenge
0: yeah and i mean like there's so many parallels in other areas i mean as i've like alluded to in this my you know just now like i feel like there's many parallels in the the same way like you know i'm also not parenting as an immigrant so like there's i feel like i'm i'm writing a script rewriting the script in Mm -hmm. so many different facets of my life um yeah trying to do things differently than my parents did or then I've seen, like, I I was also not raised in a religious household. So, you know, I have right. really no script for that. But, like,
1: yeah. it yeah. feels
0: like having to come up with a lot of new scripts, which I think is true probably for every generation. But I feel like is like, yeah. especially pronounced in these two yeah. scenarios, you know.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: But anyway, all this to say that, like, this piece, like, really hits me where I live right now. Like, I feel like I'm very mm-hmm. much in a place of, like, I know nothing. I have no answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christianity has been used to justify any number of sins and mm-hmm. religion is useless unless it helps people who need it, right? And so yeah. um, I just, I feel like, I feel like it would be like a lot easier for folks to get on board with something like Christianity if they, if they knew that it could look like this, you know? um. Yeah. But that's unfortunately not the brand right now.
1: It's not the brand. And no. everything that you said can sound really threatening um, mm. to to Christians, to traditional Christians. What do you mean religion doesn't have the answers? Like, what do you mean Christianity doesn't have the answers? Of course it does, right? Yeah. I
0: mean,
1: a long list of answers. Um, but what if we could be okay um, sitting in the mystery and sitting in not knowing? Um, yeah. So I, I love... I think that I love the word challenge embedded in what you just shared because I think there are real, um, these are real challenging words in challenging times.